Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brabach. And oh, happy day. We have an early Poirot short story. What are we covering on this episode, Catherine? We're covering a little bit of a weird one, aren't we, Kemper? Because we're covering the Plymouth Express. And this has like a bit of a weird history to it. It does. It does. And I think we'll talk a lot more about this when we get to the adaptation for this story that appears in the Suchet series, because that's sort of the raison d'etre for this episode, quite honestly. If the Suchet series had not seen fit to adapt Plymouth Express separately from The Mystery of the Blue Train, which is the novel that the Plymouth Express was uh, later adapted into. If they had just simply done a single adaptation for this pairing, as they did for many others, and we will talk about that and why that may be, because I think it's a little interesting, um, we probably would have just mentioned this short story on our Mystery of the Blue Train episode and not covered it separately. But we really do have two adaptations here. So let's give the short story its due. And I have to say, you know, we are not the hugest fans of the mystery of the blue train, but this is a perfectly good short Poirot short story. Yeah, I think it's fine. A little oddly written, to be completely honest. We can get there too. But we should say first published in the sketch. But of course. Of course. Um, in April of 1923, in book form. <clears throat> Which date in April, Catherine? April 4th. April 4th. Oh, is that maybe your birthday? That just might be my birthday. One of these uh, other stories was published on your birthday, I believe. I know. I think we Least came past. across one. Yeah, recently. <laughs> yeah. So we're really, really uh, lining them up. But yeah. <laughs> 98 years ago. <laughs> Since I, I'm very aware that the April 4th just passed recently. So uh, a little over 98 years ago, this story well, was first um, born in the sketch. You know what? Happy birthday to you, Kemper. I'm um, almost 98 years old. I certainly feel 98 <laughs> years old coming off of a year plus of what we've been living through. But this short story is making me feel young. <laughs> <laughs> we've all aged about you know, at least a decade, you know, hopefully we'll get through all of this before we're all dead by 50. But yeah. So in book form, the Plymouth Express, uh, it appeared in the underdog and other stories in 1951. That's the first time it actually shows up in the U.S. And then, of course, it shows up in Poirot's early cases in both the U.S. and the U.K. in 1974. Right. That was one of the more uh, existentially angsty publication histories that we've ever done. <laughs> that much is for sure. <laughs> Them be the times. <laughs> Absolutely. Tis the season. Right. All right. Let's move right along, smoothly along into our victim for the story. That would be Mrs. Rupert Carrington, nay, Flossie Halliday. And with a name like that, you may be thinking, could she be an American in a Christie short story? And of course she is. She is an American. Her name is Flossie. And she is a pretty rich lady whose body, uh, unfortunately for her, 
uh, is found when another passenger can't push something in to the bottom of his seat. He's trying to like jam his valise <laughs> on, Correct. Yeah. you know, uh, underneath him. And uh, yeah, that would be her body that is underneath the seat on the titular Plymouth Express. And she has been stabbed to death and her piles and piles of jewels that she was traveling with have been stolen. So who are our suspects? Well, we have a mysterious man who apparently was tall and thin and had dark hair and appeared to be arguing with Flossie. Mm, Um, Sounds like our murderer. Yeah, sounds like our murderer. Handsome, apparently. And, um, you know, obviously, of course, there's the husband. Of course, that would be Mr. Rupert Carrington. He has an alibi, but let's just say that Mr. and Mrs. Carrington are not so much in love anymore. They are very much estranged, and uh, he will inherit all of Flossie's considerable fortune upon her death. Again, she is an American, so of course she was born an heiress, and we will be hearing more about that in just a moment. So he has a pretty strong motive there. So then we have the Count de La Rochefort, who is another love of Flossie's. And he um, may or may not have been having an affair with her. Uh, He may have been after her jewels or her fortune or whatever. Unclear. Yeah, it's funny. Most of the character names were changed when Christie adapted the Plymouth Express into the Mystery of the Blue Train. But the character of the Count de la Rochefort has a somewhat similar name in that book. And I, it jogged my memory when I was reading it in the short story. And I was like, what is his name again? And it's actually Armand the Comte de la Roche. So he yeah. lost the four, apparently, but uh, <laughs> kept the roach. <laughs> and then Kemper, I'm going to let you have this because you're so excited about it. And because it was recently your birthday, tell us about the next potential suspect. Well, we just mentioned that Flossie, nay Halliday, is American. She's rich. She's, you know, the heiress to something. It's always a rich American daughter in these stories. So, of course, we have her rich father. And, of course, he has a super weird name. His name is Mr. Ebenezer. Oh, yes, yes, I'm just loving this, Mr. Ebenezer Halliday. And he is, quote, the Steel King of America. Another one of those. He actually is extremely distraught at the death of his daughter. And there's actually some, like, real pathos to that. Somewhat in the story, but very much in the adaptation, actually, which is striking. Um, So he's an extremely unlikely suspect. He's also the one hiring Poirot. But hey, people have been foolish enough to tango with Poirot before in this way. So you never know. You never know. So we're going to list him. And we also have Jane Mason, who's the maid to Flossie, who was on the train with her. But she was sent off the platform basically as Flossie was being murdered. So that seems unlikely. Yeah, at the the point or close to the point at which Flossie was murdered, it seems as though she was sent away. We will get into the blocking of all of that and how it happens or seems to happen in the world as it appears to be. I'm sorry to say we don't actually open up on a breakfast scene. It's a little action-y, in fact. I, I guess this goes to your point that this is a somewhat oddly written story, but we're with that other passenger who finds the dead body of poor Flossie. And um, from there, we kind of 
go into a consultation with Poirot and, and Hastings, of course, is there and narrating it. But Poirot and Hastings essentially are called to investigate the murder of a pretty young American socialite, the aforementioned Mrs. Rupert Carrington. We'll just be calling her Flossie because I just love that name. <laughs> and uh, they are called, as I mentioned, by Flossie's father, Mr. Ebenezer Halliday. Flossie, it seems, was going to a party and she had an, an enormous uh, amount of jewels on her that she was going to wear. It was going to be a super swanky event. And she was taking the Plymouth Express, but not actually to Plymouth, as it turns out. So in a nutshell, what she was doing is that she took a train from London, that would be the Plymouth Express, um, at 1214. It left from Paddington, and it arrived at Bristol at 250. And from there, she was supposed to change trains at Bristol to get to her final destination. As we mentioned, she has all these jewels on her, and they really all amounted to apparently $100,000. So this is not just a two-bit diamond ring. This is Oscars-worthy Harry Winston level of swank here. Because it's in 1923. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. However, at Bristol, when her maid collects Flossie's dressing bag and her wraps and came to collect her mistress to switch the trains, Flossie tells Jane that she wasn't switching trains at Bristol, but she was continuing on the Plymouth Express, which we're told had stops after Bristol, at Weston, at Taunton, at Exeter, and at Newton Abbott. So Flossie told Jane that she'd come back to Bristol by a train in the reverse direction and quote-unquote up train, but Flossie never showed up. By the way, I have to say that the phrase up train made me look into this because have you ever noticed it? it is a, I'm sure our uh, UK listeners will be able to weigh in on this and I'll probably get it slightly wrong somehow as I usually do when I talk about English or British idiom, but there's the whole phrase of going up to London, which is in no way indicative of actually going north. Like if you're in the north of England, you, like a lot of people actually say, oh yeah, I'm going to, I'm, you know, I'm going to take the train up to London. And like the idea is that an up train goes to London and a down train goes away from London, regardless of the direction on the compass. It's just a, a quirk of the language that I remember fondly from a lot of uh, literature. Well, for sure. But also, I hate to betray you, Kemper, but I'm working on another project. <laughs> and we were just talking about the difference between um, heavy rail, which is like subways, basically. So like you, mm-hmm. have, it's electrified, so they run both ways, right? Mm-hmm. But if you have, for example, in California or you know in the U.S., you can have commuter rail and you can have stuff like Amtrak and they're choo-choo trains. They go one way. Right. And so that's what it is, right? An up train is essentially that. It's going, you're talking about directionality and you're talking about the way that it's being driven, right? Right. Yeah. Like the track only goes in one direction and mm-hmm. it's, you know, which is Leo, I, I grew up in the suburbs of New York and Metro North functions the same way, right? Correct. You, have yeah. your, you sit yeah, on a, you, pla- you stand on a platform and like one direction is to New York and the other direction is to, you know, all, all the other towns that are further away from oh, New York. Oh yeah. New York yeah. You time. go, yeah. You go from New Haven, like you go to New York. <laughs> that's right, just what right. you do on Metro North. It gets really confusing though, because I feel like people also talk in England about going up North 
and down south. And then when you go to university, you're also going up to Oxford or up to... It just, so it just, it can actually get extremely confusing, I think. And there's some muddle about which terms people are using when and how. So if anyone would like to, you know, we love, we love getting schooled on the, the please, finer points. Please do not make this... <laughs> Well, it can, we're, not, we're not making any, we're, we will never be so foolhardy as to pretend to have any sort of certain footing or knowledge as to the way that you all speak in the United Kingdom, because we obviously have no idea. Or the so I'm more, I'm just, I'm just sort of asking for more information. I'm, a, I'm asking to be taught. I'm just consider me a sponge listeners and fill me up. And That's also consider that if you're listening to this podcast five years after we <laughs> issue it, please d- please don't tell us. <laughs> As evidenced by the hundreds and thousands, the, the, uh, the ever the, ongoing. The, the ever <laughs> ongoing hundreds and thousands, which we, you know what, we really do appreciate always the fact that people have been like generally very kind about it. But at this point, we understand what hundreds and thousands are. <laughs> And that Bovril is pronounced Bovril. We do know that. We don't get that one as much, but occasionally. Occasionally. <laughs> Once in a while. All right. Back in this plot, because this has been an aside. Flossie never showed up. I mean, the you know she told right. she told her maid that she would take one of these up trains and um, you know come back, but she never showed up. At which point, really, nothing happened until that opening scene when the other passenger found her dead body on the actual train. So when Jane the maid is questioned, the plot thickens because this is when she says, "Well, when my mistress told me that I should wait at Bristol, which was not according to plan, there was actually some." in the compartment with her and he was this tall thin man with dark hair but he was not facing me he was uh, standing looking out of the farther window so I couldn't Mm -hmm. see his face she has no idea who he was and no one really seems to have any idea who he was but it would seem that he must have had something to do with her murder because his presence would indicate that he is the reason that she changed her plans on the spur of the moment so it's all just very mysterious right and so Jane she tells um, a Flossie's clothes. And also we find out that Inspector Jap is involved, which is always exciting. But Flossie was wearing a bright blue dress and a white fur. And Jane is very specific about this. Right. Poirot also, you know, he calls out Mr. Halliday and sort of pretends that he's not even going to take on the case and represent him as a client because he's not being honest with him. He says, I know that you're lying to me. I know you're not telling me everything. And that, of course, is true because Poirot is never wrong. It seems that Flossie... Uh, his dear daughter, had actually gone back to the Count de la Rochefort, who she had been having an affair with since her marriage was in tatters. And there was a note found on her body that was a love letter. The note found on her body is a love letter that he wrote to her. And it, it very much connects the two of them and shows that what we have here is an honest-to-goodness love triangle. We're told that the Count is perhaps not the most upstanding gentleman and that his designs on Flossie may have been to get her jewels, to 
squeeze some money out of her. Mm -hmm. You know, he had a mercenary motivation, it seems, as well. And it also just kind of emotionally puts these three characters, Flossie, Rupert Carrington, and the Count, into this turbulent love triangle that uh, just very much seems to point at both of them. It seems like it has to be one of these two men. Yeah, and so Jap does actual detective work on the ground, and Poirot, I think, really charmingly appreciates it. I really liked that about this story, but Poirot is basically just using his little gray cells and making some psychological notes. Right, like he doesn't pretend that the investigatory work is pointless like he often does and that he really could just solve it all from his armchair. Like he appreciates that Jap is putting in the effort and doing the grunt work, but he, of course, is not doing it himself. (laughs) (laughs) No, and it's one of the rare cases where Jap actually does know more information than Poirot does. Yeah, his insider information as a regular policeman is key. Because he knows that there is a guy named Red Narky. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> Not great. And he seems to have pawned some of Flossie's jewels. And it seems plausible that he is behind this whole thing. And he normally works with female accomplices as well. Interesting. Female mm-hmm. accomplices. Oh, gee, I wonder where this is going. <laughs> By the way, could, would Red Narky be like a starring character in the animated version of Narcos or something? <laughs> I, I know, seriously. I was like, what kind of name is that? That's. I was imagining like Yosemite Sam in a Narcos plot. <laughs> that that's sort of what came up in my mind. Well, and then you could have Ebe- you could have Ebenezer. What's his last name? You, you could have Ebenezer Halliday also like teamed up. But yeah, very much like a, like a borderline Looney Tunes. When you said what's his last name, I was going to be like, Scrooge? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Poirot makes a strategic guess, and that's really all it is, a guess, that the weapon, which we know is a knife, she was stabbed to death, uh, is going to be found between Weston and Taunton, not at Bristol. So after, you know, much after the train was at Bristol. And as usually happens when Poirot makes a guess, he is correct. That is where the knife is found. Seems to have been flung out of the train between Weston and Taunton further down the line. And we also find out that Flossie spoke with a paperboy at Weston. That would be the station after Bristol. She was easily identified by her outfit. Remember, again, Jane had, you know, been very specific about what she was wearing, this blue and white outfit. And she gave the paperboy a half crown since she's such an extravagant American, but that's a huge tip. So he very much remembered her. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as we go into the world as it actually is, it seems basically as though that tall, thin man with dark hair had to have either been Rupert Carrington or the Count, and it could have been because that description more or less fits either of those men, and it seems as though they must have killed her in her compartment a little bit after Bristol and then eventually thrown the knife out. But of course, course, this is an Agatha Christie story, and it's got to be a little more complicated than that. So uh, let's start with clue number one, Catherine Brobeck. Timing. It's a classic Christie clue, and I like actually that she's doing it very early here, too. But the obvious assumption that she's begging us to make is that Flossie was killed 
after she abandoned her mate at Bristol and had this run in with Paperboy. And after that, that would mean at some point after Weston on the Plymouth Express line. There's a deduction here, and we're very familiar at this point. But at its core, it's a flip it and reverse it clue. Is it worth it? Let me work it. I put my thing down, flip it and reverse it. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> because we should be very wary of assumptions Christy is begging us to make. And we should do our best to think about whether the opposite might be true. What if Flossie died prior to Bristol? Interesting. You intrigue me, Catherine. Mm-hmm. Let's let's probe this issue a little further. All right, clue number two. The specificity of the clothing. You know, Jane the maid makes a massive point about what Flossie was wearing, and that is confirmed by the paperboy. Apparently, she even referenced her outfit to the paperboy. Like, Flossie herself was talking about her outfit because she said that she looked like someone on the cover of the magazine that she was buying. So the deduction here is that what we really have on our hands is essentially a costuming clue, which is... Practically actor adjacent, I would say, because they're they're often doing the same thing. Right. The idea is what we should be thinking about very carefully is why would someone want to draw as much attention as possible to someone's clothes? Correct. It seems that Jane wants to draw attention to Flossie's clothes. It seems that Flossie herself, that fateful day, was intent on drawing attention to her clothes. Could there be some sort of disguise slash impersonation thing going on here? And you know what, Catherine? I'm just going to go ahead and grab clue number three because I insist that you take clue number four. Oh, of course you do. Yep. Yep. So (laughs) stay tuned, listeners, because we're going to end on a high note, as it were. (laughs) But clue number three is also... We, we, these are all Christie classics, all of these clues, which is why this is a really fun story. Right. Um, I feel like at this point, these short stories are like a primer for solving the novels because we're so familiar with Christie clues. And I love the way that these these clues often just support well, And also, each other. by the way, you were giving a definite spoiler alert. Everybody who's a regular listener to this podcast knows what clue number four is going to be. But you go on Indeed. with clue number three. <laughs> Indeed. So clue number three is the eyewitness testimony clue. We've talked about this so many times. I feel like we express it a couple different ways. Sometimes it's the you can't believe only one sense clue. But what it also could be is that if only one person, just one person, is providing the lion's share of eyewitness testimony, we should always be very skeptical about that. And it's very cleverly laid out here because it's not super obvious that that's the case. But if we think very carefully about all this supposed eyewitness testimony that's happening here, we'll see that almost all of it seems to be coming from one person. And that would, of course, be Jane Mason, the maid. So the deduction is, should we trust Jane Mason, the maid? And now mm. I doff my cap to you, Catherine, for our final clue. Clue number four. Oy vey. Folks, I hope you are all tipping well during quarantine because here's what we do not do on this podcast. We do not ever underestimate the help. No, indeed. So I think we all see where this is going, right? (laughs) The deduction is pretty obvious. Um, It should also be noted that Christy likes a good female criminal. So what is our resolution here, Gemper? All right. Well, Red Narky, we mentioned he's this career criminal that seems to have been fencing some of these stolen jewels, right? He works with uh, female accomplices. The lady friend in question this time was named Gracie Kidd. 
Let's hold on to that information for a second because toward the end of the story, Poirot and Hastings actually go into Jane Mason's room and break into her trunk. You know, seems a bit forward as it's mm. happening. It does. <laughs> let's say. <laughs> it definitely but, does. Uh, but it's warranted because what they find in her trunk is an interesting outfit for one who works as a maid, especially considering it's an exact copy of the outfit that her mistress, Flossie Halliday, had been wearing the day she was murdered. That's right. She has a bright blue dress and a white fur in her trunk. What is happening here, Catherine? Weston and Taunton are after Bristol, which appeared to alibi out Jane. But in fact, Flossie was murdered before Bristol, and it was Jane who went back. It was Jane who went to that paper boy. She was not on the platform initially. She did not see a man arguing with Flossie. And then she changed into the clothes. She herself had cited copies of Flossie's and made a big show of things so that it appeared that Flossie was definitely still alive the knife was also thrown off after bristol assuming it would be found even though flossie was long dead thanks to red narky and she had already been stuffed into a seat and in fact jane is gracie kid she's the femme fatale in a jewel gang Right. What we have is a time shift that is pulled off with the aid of costuming. Correct. <laughs> right? Yeah. A supplemental clue is the fact that Red Narky, we're told, is very short and he's a redhead. That would be pretty much the opposite description to the man Jane claims to have seen in the compartment. Right. In the window. Mistress. Yeah. So, you know, and Poirot guesses that, that, you know, Red Narky is short and that he essentially looks the opposite of a tall, thin, dark man. And that's just because she wants people looking for and thinking about a man who looks the opposite of the man who was actually lurking around the train and killing her mistress. So that just sort of provides some extra cover, but it's an, you know, it's, it's a kind of neat little uh, supplementary disguising clue or costuming clue, at least as to eyewitness testimony and the ultimate unreliability of that eyewitness testimony, which is, I think is also very effectively done. Mm-hmm. And it's such a key thing to keep in mind, um, especially when we're reading a lot of those really clever early Christie novels. Right. And I mean, I guess what I would say about this is this story is like actually like good in a bunch of ways. We laid out the clues that I think come into major importance in so many later stories. And, you know, you're seeing them all here. It's oddly written, which is what I said up front. Because it's sort of written by Hastings, except that's not really how it's written. Yeah, there's no Hastings voice in it whatsoever. But there is like a there is a first person in various parts of it, which is odd. I know it's ostensibly from Hastings's point of view, but it doesn't read that way. It's actually I mean, it is an incredibly efficiently told story because it's on the shorter side of these short stories. And, you know, as is so often the case, it's told in these kind of action sequency chunks. 
and she really just gets right to it and gets the mystery out there. I, I actually quite liked it, but I do know what you mean. It doesn't have the same tone to it that a lot of these early short stories do. Like the whole thing with Poirot and Hastings breaking, well, they don't break in really, but they like are very actiony and it's not that they don't do that. What's the one where they, where Poirot dresses up as a handyman? What novel is that? Oh no, that's a, yeah, that's a short story too. The one where at least in the Suchet series, he's a cat burglar. Yeah. I can't remember. It's it's actually one of the early short stories in Poirot Investigates that's collected in Poirot Investigates, I believe. This is Kemper here from the future as I'm editing this episode. It is actually The Veiled Lady, which appears in the U.S. edition of Poirot Investigates. There are a few of those stories that were not collected in the U.K. Poirot Investigates that appeared in the U.S. version. And in the U.K., it actually appeared in Poirot's early cases. We've seen him do it before, but it is a little odd here, too. It's just like, this doesn't seem quite right. Yeah, I don't know. I was I didn't have a problem with it. I mean, you know, this is Christy writing in 1923. She was yet to write the big four. You know, this is when she was still having Poirot do some of that more actiony business. So I think this is pretty, you know, restrained for her. (laughs) I mean, fair enough. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. You know, Catherine, I feel like sometimes we get so caught up in the admittedly epic romance slash adventure slash romp that you and Howie have been on for nearly a year now that we forget to point out one of the more obvious facts about Best Fiends, which is that it's just a lot of fun to play and relaxing. And that is a beautiful thing. You know what, Kemper? Excuse me while I step off this roller coaster. I've been careening around on with my love, Howie the Lizard. Just to nod my head heartily at what you're saying and add that the game design is worth shouting out too. It's a particularly pretty game, actually. It's fun to just look at it and looking at it makes me happy. Not as happy as my relationship with Howie the Lizard, but happy nevertheless. Tis too true. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. I like this story a lot. And it's funny because, you know, Blue Train, which we can talk about, is based on this. And obviously, we don't like that book. And she hated it. I think we should talk a little bit about the Suchet adaptation. So this one was the uh, fourth episode of season three. So this is when they were still, you know, doing lots of um, short stories, mainly short stories, and they they hadn't yet moved on to doing the novels. And it's pretty clear that at this point in the series, they didn't realize that they were going to do every single or almost every single Poirot story that Christie had written. Because if they did realize that they were going to do that, I think there's a good chance 
that they would have said, oh, well, we'll just cover this when we cover the mystery of the blue train. Right. Mark Aldridge, our good friend, in his book, Agatha Christie on Screen, I think puts it really well. So I'm just going to quote him. He says, there are a handful of instances where Christie later expands some of her short stories into other reworked, usually longer short stories, or as in this instance, a fully fledged novel, as the mystery of the blue train reworks the basics of this short story into a novel. Usually the series only adapts the most substantial form of any story. For example, the market-basing mystery was later expanded and reworked as Murder in the Muse, and it was the latter that was adapted for television. Perhaps the reason for tackling the story was a perceived paucity of suitable short stories, or more likely, the sense that it was unlikely the series would reach a point where the full novel would need to be adapted. And, you know, I don't blame them for probably thinking, well, even if we adapt some of these novels, we're probably not going to do The Mystery of the Blue Train. Right. You know Agatha Christie hated it, <laughs> you know, and it's, I, I still, I have more affection for that novel than clearly its creator did. I don't think it's abysmal, but it's not great. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's okay. I mean, I think it's really interesting actually just to run down because I know this is the sort of thing that uh, we Christie freaks live for. The full list of short stories that the series didn't adapt because it's more than you would think. It's not a hugely a hugely long list, but um, you know, Mark mentioned the market basing mystery. Then we also have the submarine plans, which was filmed as the Incredible Theft. That's another novella. She reworked those short stories mm-hmm. into novellas. Right. Um, same thing with the second Gong, which was filmed as Dead Man's Mirror. Um, then we have Christmas Adventure, which was filmed as the Adventure of the Christmas Pudding. She just turned that into a longer, more substantial short story. So we only get the the Christmas Pudding short story. Uh, the Mystery of the Baghdad Chest was reworked into the Mystery of the Spanish Chest. That's the one that is filmed. And then, interestingly, we have a couple of short stories that were only really published and began to be discussed until much more recently. There's the Incident of the Dog's Ball, which John Curran publishes at the back of one of his books. Um, And that is the short story that became Dumb Witness. They never filmed that. And we also, of course, have Hercule Poirot and the Green Shore Folly, which, to be fair, was, I believe, published in 2014, which is after the Suchet series finished. So that one wasn't even officially published until they were done. But that, of course, is the earlier novella version of Dead Man's Folly. And we also have the capture of Cerberus, the unpublished version of the capture of Cerberus, right. which um, yeah, was just, not collected. Right. In the, in the, and we I think we can that. say that they, for, for you know, even though they didn't do an, a necessarily amazing job, they basically did adapt all of the short stories within the labors of Hercules. But of course we have the Le Miserier inheritance or Le Meserer inheritance, which was that one short story that was never adapted. And perhaps most damningly black coffee, the original Christie play, which uh, we have covered on a Patreon episode, but that is a, you know, that is a original Poirot content. It's early. It's super fun. It's very Poirotian. You know, David Suchet, I believe what he did is that he actually did a live reading of it for the Agatha Christie Theater Company, but, you know, never filmed. And then the only other one is a short story we haven't covered yet. So we haven't talked about this, but oddly, there is a short story called The Regatta Mystery, which most people know as a Parker 
Parker Pine short story, but it was first published as Poirot in the Regatta Mystery. So it actually is technically a, a Poirot story, and that also was never adapted as part of the series. So, you know, there there are some holes, even though the series was about as complete as I think it reasonably could be. So I, I applaud sort of the due diligence, ultimately, of adapting this episode, because I think it's really good. I think it's a really interesting adaptation of the story. I mentioned that there's a lot of pathos to it because the father, Mr. Halliday, we actually are introduced to him before he knows that his daughter is dead in this version. And when he finds out that she has died because he's just trying to protect her and he knows that she's in danger and he's worried about these jewels and she's missing and he's just so upset about it. And then when he finds out, I mean, he is really broken and destroyed about it. And they don't pull back from that drama and that pathos. And we also get the scene in which she's killed in the short story version. We're told that she's actually, I believe, knocked unconscious before stabbed. Mm-hmm. But that is not what happens in, well, in the adaptation. Cl- she's, she's chloroformed. In the short story, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's chloroformed. Yeah. yeah. She's chloroformed. But in the adaptation, I mean, we see and we see it happen. This man comes in and actually David Suchet talks about the actor who plays the character that is the counterpart to Red Narky <laughs> in the text. And he's actually an, an, an amazing actor. This is what he says in his book, Poirot and Me. The Plymouth Express was a revelation because it underlined just how much the Poirot series could now attract some of the finest actors in the profession. The cast included the exceptional Kenneth Hay, who was the original Jimmy Porter in John Osborne's groundbreaking drama, Look Back in Anger in 1956. I had known him in the theater and was immensely pleased that he accepted the part of a deceiving fence in the story. He was a great addition to the cast. His character name is Mackenzie and he's, you know, not ridiculous. He's actually fairly terrifying. And when he breaks into that carriage and just full on stabs her and she like turns around and her face is pressed up against the window, it's brutal and very effective and memorable. Well, I mean, have you ever seen Look Back in Anger? I did see a production of Look Back in Anger, I believe, at the Royal National, in fact, in London, when I was doing a semester abroad at Oxford. I have also seen it, and I mean, it's a great play. So, oh my God, like that to be the original. Yeah. L- l- I mean, my God, like that, that man is a legend. Like, Correct. That's, that's amazing. Yep. <laughs> it's like a brilliant play. Yep. But yeah, I, I quite liked it. I think they, they did the short story proud. Yeah, I think it's a good episode. I think it's a good short story. Like, I mean, again, I think there are writing problems with it, but I think the plot of it works quite well. It's 100% worth reading. I mean, just get over the oddity of it. It's not, I want to be clear, it's not that the writing is bad per se. It's that it's odd. Yeah, I quite liked it, actually. I mean, yeah, I think that it was a breath of fresh air, actually, as much as I obviously love those early Poirot short stories and how there's a sameness to them. Mm -hmm. I really have a great deal of affection for that. But this one is different. And, you know, I'm sure there must be some reason why it was. Who knows? Like, who knows if there was something different happening with where it was placed or how it was placed in that edition of the sketch or something. But it feels like there was a a slightly different direction that either she was given or, you know, it obviously could be completely self-generated and she could have just decided to write this because she wanted to. But it's curious because so many of the rest of them seem the same. Right. Like this one feels as different as it does. Yeah. No, but it's it's definitely like 
a worthwhile read and it's a worthwhile episode of the Suchet series. Agreed. You know, any short story that also includes Jap in the text mm-hmm. is extremely welcome. So that's also very organic in the adaptation. That is the Plymouth Express. Love a Poirot short story. We don't have that many of them left, although we actually do still have a healthy handful, I would say. So let's not despair quite yet. We will certainly not be despairing in our next episode because we have a special episode that we are so excited to bring you. Something that we have done a lot more of, you may notice, uh, especially the last year, is to broaden our horizons slightly and speak with contemporary mystery writers. And we really enjoy doing it. And we love talking to them about their craft and about mysteries and about Agatha Christie, of course. Of course. And I'm so excited to announce that we were able to do that recently with uh, an author of a thriller that a lot of people have been talking about, haven't they, Catherine? Oh, yeah. I often mention my childhood best friend on this podcast because I know that she does not listen to it. <laughs> and um, she was actually the first person who told me about this book, and she read it the day it came out, actually. We talked to Alexandra Andrews, who wrote, who is Maud Dick, and it's been like a source of a lot of buzz lately. It's going to be a movie. Yeah, and fingers crossed it'll be, it's going to be a big movie. Yeah, it's kind of a little bit of a talented Mr. Ripley, I guess, Kemper. I would say for fans of Patricia Highsmith, and I would imagine that there's some overlap there that a lot of you Christie heads appreciate a Highsmith novel or two. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, we would give a shout out to our um, friend Andrew Wilson. Yes, the first conference we attended, actually, one of the highlights was getting to know Andrew Wilson, who uh, has written, I think, the foremost biography on Patricia Highsmith. We love Andrew Wilson, and he is such a talented writer, and you guys might know him from his um, Agatha Christie novels, but also, uh, you know, a biographer of Patricia Highsmith. I really think it's a book that a lot of you will enjoy if you haven't read it already. And we had such a great time speaking with Allie. We can't wait to share that conversation with you. And then in the episode following that one, we are getting back to my happy place, Marple Land, with a Caribbean mystery. Again, two marples back to back. Oh my gosh, Um, you could not be more excited. Or should I say false hairpiece to false hairpiece? Um, I think that's the quitting time bell calling. I think we should uh, wrap up this episode. And if you haven't gotten enough of us, which I find hard to believe at this point, you always could get more of us over at our Patreon site, www.patreon.com. Do you want to tell them what we're doing next on the Patreon? Next on the Patreon, we are also broadening our horizons uh, as to other mystery writers because we do occasionally read uh, books other than Christie Mysteries. We are reading a mystery by Josephine Tay. That's right. We're reading Daughter of Time. We're very excited. I've never read it before. Really? Yeah. I can't wait. I'm, oh my I'm gosh. super excited about this. 
And our most recent episode was all about the unexpected guest, original Christie play. So, you know, we talk about Christie, we talk about other authors, we get very deep, very personal. We have a lot of fun over there. So please uh, join us if you would like to. You can always email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine on Twitter at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha and our Instagram handle is at All About Agatha. And we would really appreciate uh, more ratings and reviews. We've actually gotten a whole bunch of them recently and they really do help other people find the podcast. So please keep those coming in if you haven't already done so for yourself. We'd really just appreciate if you could take a minute or two to uh, let us know what you think of this podcast. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.